Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction. And free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hey, Alarmy. Before we get started, we wanted to make sure you heard the big news. The Alarmist has joined Patreon. Patreon subscribers will get access to our content ad-free, as well as our aftermath post-interview discussion and final verdict. We'll also be putting out additional bonus episodes and other fun stuff. Here's a preview of Guest Alarmist, where I step aside and let a guest walk us through a personal tragedy, and together the Alarmist crew figures out who's to blame. This month, comedian and writer Jessica Eason tells us about her New York City no-underwear extravaganza disaster. I mean, I, I, I just said it, but I feel like sex in the city. I yes. think it steered me wrong. I think wow. it made me think that I could have sex all the time, and we all lived in the same Manhattan but they didn't live in the improv comedy world. There's no episodes of them with a bunch of nerdy white dudes. <laughs> no. I would love to see that episode <laughs> where Samantha, I mean, that's a missed opportunity on their part where Samantha starts yes. taking an improv class and oh, suddenly yes. no one wants to have like have sex with her. <laughs> <laughs> or they all do and she's like in a sea of comedy nerds. <laughs> yeah, and she suddenly loses her libido. She's like, I don't want to have sex. I don't know. It's really weird. <laughs> oh my God, they break her. <laughs> Go to patreon.com slash the alarmist and subscribe today. Now on to our episode. Each week we decide who's to blame for a historical tragedy. And each week you tell us if we got it right. My name is Rebecca Delgado Smith and this is The Aftermath. The Aftermath. Hey everyone, thanks for tuning into this episode of The Aftermath. Today we're speaking with guest expert 
Stacy Schiff. Stacy is a Pulitzer Prize winning biographer and author of the New York Times number one bestseller, Cleopatra, A Life. Her most recent book is also a New York Times bestseller, The Revolutionary. Let's hear what she has to say about the life and death of Cleopatra VII. Hi, Stacy. Thank you so much for joining us today. Hi, Rebecca. I'm delighted to be here. Well, let's dive right in because we have so much to cover. Could you start off by giving us some background on the Ptolemaic dynasty? How did Cleopatra's ancestors come to power and what were they like as rulers? Shortly after uh, the death of Alexander the Great, so in 323 BC, the most enterprising of his generals um, had the brilliant idea of laying claim to the throne of Egypt. And we know relatively little about that Ptolemy. He was in some tellings, he's a childhood intimate of Alexander the Great. In some tellings, he was a relative. He was the official taster for Alexander the Great. But he claims the throne of Egypt and therefore begins a new dynasty, the legitimacy of which rests on this kind of tenuous connection to Alexander the Great, who was, of course, the most storied figure of the ancient world. And the Ptolemies, who are therefore Macedonian Greeks, don't renounce their Greek heritage, but they buy themselves this kind of legitimacy conferring past because of Alexander the Great. And they pass themselves off as not only his heirs, but within the country as the new pharaohs. They have this sort of fabricated link with the pharaohs. And that, by some logic, seems to justify the practice of sibling marriage, which they seem to understand to be an Egyptian custom. Hmm. So I think of the 15 family marriages that precede Cleopatra's birth, 10 of those are full brother and sister marriages. So if her parents were full siblings, as they as they probably were, she only has one set of grandparents. I mean, it's very complicated. Wow. And that, and that couple actually happened to be uncle and niece. So the succession is always a little bit of a kind of family crisis for the Ptolemies. And there is, um, I'm not sure there's a better word for it. There's a lot of butchery over the next couple of centuries. Who was Ptolemy the Twelfth, and how did Egyptians view him? Um, well, following up on that butchery, Cleopatra's grandfather murdered his wife. Oh, wow. and I know it just—it's just such a lovely family history, isn't it? And her <laughs> uncle did the same, but, but without realizing that she, the wife, was the more popular of the two of them. And so he, so a mob comes to lynch him eighteen days later. So after this two century long rampage of you know, family dynamics in 80 BC, there are no more legitimate Ptolemies to ascend to the throne. So especially given the rise of Rome on the horizon, a successor has to be found very quickly. And Cleopatra's father, Ptolemy XII is sent for. And he has, he has for some reason been, summoned, been sent off to Syria about 23 years earlier. And it's unclear if he was ever really raised to rule, but it's very clear that he was the only viable option at that point. Wow. And, and what was his reign like? Was, was he liked by his people? He has the balancing act that Cleopatra will inherit, which is to say that he has to, Rome is very much on the rise. He has to ingratiate himself in Rome in order to survive, but he has to appear to his people as if he is not pandering to the Romans. And it's a balancing act that he carries off with some delicacy, but not entirely successfully. He's he's viewed by by his people as kind of a dissolute. He's very he seems to be much more interested in flute playing and entertainment than he is in politics. Mm. 
What do we know about Cleopatra's early childhood years? Uh, What was her family dynamic like? I think the the short answer to your question is that we know almost nothing about her early years. Childhood was not really a bestseller in the ancient world. (laughs) So, So because people didn't talk about formative years, but they what we have instead, or what I think tells us the most, is her education. And there we know absolutely everything because anyone born to an upper-class family in the ancient world had precisely the same education. Um, In her case, she's obviously living um, in the shadow of the Library of Alexandria. It's a very literary education. We know she learned fables. We know she learned her myths. We know that she would have known huge passages of Homer by heart. That was kind of the Bible of the day. Um, we know how we know what she read early on. We know how she was taught to make a speech. Um, we know the kinds of syllogisms she would have had to argue. Um, we know what the questions that she had to write out as essays were. So we know a lot about it. It was a very intense education. Um, we know how she learned to read. Um, we know she was fabulously gifted at it. Um, she come, it turns out to be an immensely persuasive speaker. And from Plutarch, we know that somehow in the course of those years, she also masters nine languages. But Mm. but most importantly, it's the same education that Julius Caesar or Mark Antony or any of the men with whom she was going to interact in Rome over the next years would also have had. Why was her father, uh, Ptolemy XII, sent into exile? Uh, And when he is sent out into exile, who takes the throne during this period? I don't think I know the answer to that. Do we know the answer to that question? <laughs> I had read somewhere that uh, the older sister um, had uh, taken over and then she was eventually murdered by her father when he returns. But Oh, sorry. That's Cleopatra's sister. Well, I... Yes. Okay. Um, when, when Ptolemy is on the throne, one of his sisters goes to Rome oh. to essentially try to unseat him, which tells you something already about the family dynamic. But also while he's in Rome, um, which is perhaps more telling, Cleopatra's older sister um, usurps the, the Egyptian throne. And on the father's return, he does away with the sister. And that leaves <sighs> Cleopatra and her next sibling, her, her older, the older of her two brothers, in line for the throne at his death. Gotcha. And And... and- you see what Just, I mean about lovely families, right? Yeah, I, I guess it's almost tradition. Well, <laughs> to, Plutarch says that. To, Plutarch says something hilarious about you know this was this happened in the this was axiomatic in the best of families is basically the way he puts it. This is how <laughs> Hellenistic sovereigns operated. <laughs> so after her father's death, how does Cleopatra become queen? Under what terms? And, and what is her relationship uh, like with her with the, her siblings, the one who were still alive. Um, also, do we know anything about her mother? You know, that's such a, that's one of the big question marks. We know almost nothing about the mother. We know that she died. She's, she's gone by the time Cleopatra's 12. Um, there's no later reference to her. We know that she's quite a bit younger than Cleopatra's father. And she was very likely his sister or his half sister, but she's a big question mark. And that's why, you know, when people talk about Cleopatra's ethnic heritage, there's a little bit of a possible margin for error here, because although sibling marriage is being practiced and these people are Macedonian Greek all, you know, once and then all over again, because they're marrying each within the same family, we have a possible outlier because 
So we don't know the identity of her mother. But she, the father dies, interestingly, of natural causes, which, huh. as you can tell, is unusual in these circumstances. He dies in 51. Um, and he leaves the throne to Cleopatra and the older of her two brothers. Um, she's 18. The brother's eight years younger. In title, they are married, but that does not appear to have been a sexual liaison at that point. And although it sounds young, I mean, putting it all in perspective, Alexander the Great was a general at 16 and master of the world at 20. So it's not a, a total outlier either. Um, but the two siblings are very quickly embroiled in a civil war, um, one against the other. Um, she has the losing hand, and that's the moment when Julius Caesar will arrive in Egypt. The brother has, at this point, really chased her from Alexandria, and she has camped out um, in the eastern Sinai, where she's been raising a an army of mercenaries over the summer of 48 BC. So what um, what brings Julius Caesar to Alexandria? What what are the circumstances? And, and, and how does Cleopatra then seize this opportunity to convince him to help her? I guess the, the easiest way to make sense of the politics at that moment is that it's like an intersection of two civil wars. Caesar is at war with the with Pompey, um, the great Roman general, and has just chased Pompey across the Mediterranean. And Pompey on arrival in Egypt um, is essentially met with emissaries from Cleopatra's brother who can't quite decide if they should let him land or if they should not let him land. Um, you know, what's the bargain they have with Rome? What's their loyalty to which Roman general? A lot of Egyptian politics in these years was trying to figure out which Roman general you should back. And they decide essentially that it's more dangerous to let Pompey live than die, and they murder him within mm. sight of the shore of, e of Egypt at that moment. So Caesar has raced to, um, to Egypt after Pompey and arrives to find that his great rival has died. Um, he's also not entirely certain how the Alexandrians are going to take to the entrance of a Roman general into the city of Alexandria. So um, he holds up in Cleopatra's palace um, with, a, with something of a rebellion, with a local rebellion on his hands. He has about 4,000 men with him and he has to calm them. And the, and the task then falls to Cleopatra. He, he summons the two feuding siblings. So you have the Egyptian civil war intersecting with the Roman one. And Cleopatra is left with the task of somehow making her way from this encampment in the desert to which her brother has chased her um, without being noticed into the halls of her own palace um, to in somehow endear herself to Julius Caesar and to argue her case, arguing that he should back her and not her brother in their war against each other. So that is the famous Elizabeth Taylor Richard Burton scene, except in the real version, it did not seem to involve um, a carpet. <laughs> what was that real version like? Do we know? We, we, know, we have some hints. We know that one of her, we know that a faithful retainer of hers rose her um, to the shore, sort of off of under the lighthouse of Alexandria and um, and that he probably did, did it in a leather sack as opposed to a roll of carpet. Um, she was probably, um, you know, not as well coiffed as she is in the Elizabeth Taylor Richard Burton version, <laughs> but she does, but he does secret her back into her, into the hallways of her home. And somehow over the next week, she manages to convince Caesar that she is a, a surer bet than is her brother. 
um, which was in a funny way, a very difficult argument to make because the brother had the army, would have been the more natural alternative. Um, but somehow she manages to get Caesar to believe that she is the better heir to the throne. Um, and then she and Caesar will remain holed up in the palace together. There's another little wrinkle because of course there's a surviving sister and the surviving sister will um, sneak out of the, of the palace and appoint herself the queen of Egypt. So there is another sort of, you know, an, another dynastic wrinkle there in the, in the family. But ultimately Julius Caesar and Cleopatra become allies. And by the time they win the Alexandrian war and go off to explore the rest of Egypt together, Cleopatra is pregnant by Julius Caesar. So what does their relationship then turn into? Uh, what is it like? And how does it come to an end? Well, you know, it's very hard to say if what it's a, obviously a very strategic relationship for both of them, but mm -hmm. it's also very easy, I think, to imagine the two of them together. And I, when I say, and I say imagine, because obviously we don't have anything from a, from a documentation point of view. Caesar mentions her precisely once in his book about the Alexandrian war, and we have nothing from Cleopatra, but they are both of them congenial, charismatic, very quick-witted people. Um, they know how to ingratiate. Plutarch is very clear on the fact that Cleopatra knew every dialect of flattery. Um, they're both immensely well-read. They're both masterful seducers. Um, and they're both, they both have that same sort of intellectual curiosity that was very much a trademark of the Hellenistic age. Um, and they're both pranksters at heart. So, and gamblers. So there's, mm. you see that there could be a really sort of natural rapport between the two of them. And, and, and two, there's a, you know, I think of them, I, I think of them, or I thought of them as I was writing the book of kind of two trust fund children who had come together and could finally talk about, you know, their issues <laughs> candidly, because, you know, who else was going to understand what the two of them faced? I mean, it's, it's the lonely at the top problem. Um, but there's, there's a real sense there of two people who were very compatible and well matched um, in terms of their talents. And, and Caesar, of course, had never had never met a woman who either was as capable as Cleopatra. Roman women did not uh, raise armies and control currencies, nor had he met a woman who was seen by her people as a deity. And some of that clearly does seem to run rub off on Julius Caesar. Now, he she's actually in Rome when Julius Caesar is assassinated. What does she do next? Well, the news of the assassination seems to clearly undermines her position in Rome. And I guess we should probably add that Caesar also has a wife living in Rome at that moment. Um, and Cleopatra is there with their child. I mean, it's a very strange, we, we don't really know why she's camped in Rome, you know, across town from his wife. It would seem to be a fairly edgy thing to do at the very mm -hmm. least. But as soon as she hears of the assassination, she leaves town quickly because her support has been completely undermined, has completely eroded out from under her. And she and she runs back to Alexandria. Now, after Julius Caesar's death, how does uh, how, how do Cleopatra and Mark Antony meet? What is uh, his political status at the moment? And, and how does his alliance with her help both of them? So Mark Antony is one of um, Caesar's most trusted generals, probably 
The two of them had crossed paths in Rome. Mark Antony had actually been in Egypt years earlier, but it's unlikely the two of them would have met. They certainly would have known each other or of each other from her time in Rome. And she certainly would have known him by reputation. He was, she would have known that he had had a wild youth and he had a rather, I guess, messy adulthood, um, politically astute, kind of on alternate days of the week and equally audacious as he was reckless. Um, but given the way she goes to meet him ultimately when he will summon her later, a scene that Shakespeare essentially steals from Plutarch, we know that she kind of knew her customer. I mean, she knew she had sized up Mark Antony very well by this point. But her riddle after the death of Caesar, and in a funny way, this is the riddle of the rest of her life, is really which of his former generals, which of his heirs she should side with. It's been the, it's the same riddle with which her father had conjured. And she, for various reasons, will bank on Mark Antony, with whom there is, again, um, a love affair, which maybe was a romance. It's it's a little bit, I mean, it's very difficult to tell. Yes, they have three children together. Um, <laughs> but as Plutarch wrote of a very, of a very different liaison, there are love affairs that harmonize well with the matters at hand. And this was a this was one that really harmonized well with both of their agendas. She had she had real reason to cultivate Mark Antony. I see. And and, and in contrast to Julius, her relationship with Julius Caesar. Uh, what was her relationship like with Mark Antony? Um, does it even matter it, if it was romantic? <laughs> yeah, I know. It's, it, I think it's fair to say that Mark Antony is the, he, he has less self-control. He's, he's the more boyish of the two. He doesn't have the perfect command that Caesar demonstrates at every moment. And, you know, I guess, and again, I'm going out on a little bit of a limb here. I guess you could say that Cleopatra does seem to have had the upper hand in the relationship with Mark Antony, or at least is more able to manipulate Mark Antony than she may have been able to manipulate Julius Caesar. Um, at one point, Mark Antony, two of them are together. Mark Antony um, is considering going back to his wife. I should say that these are always married Romans with whom Cleopatra ends up. And Cleopatra does this astonishing kind of, I'm dying of, I'm going to go on hunger strike. I'm dying from love for you. Has your wife ever proved her devotion as I'm about to do kind of act? So, and, and manages to prevail. So I would say that Mark Antony seems a little bit more um, amenable to her wishes. Hmm. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. 
For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Now, in researching Cleopatra, there is so much energy spent on trying to figure out her physical appearance. And why do you think there's so much debate about whether or not she was attractive? How is this relevant to how she was as a ruler? That is the million dollar question, isn't it? You have to wonder if women had been writing the Roman histories, how would Cleopatra have come down to us, right? Right. I I think it's a couple of things. I think to some extent she's associated, I mean, she's derided as being this kind of avatar of the sinuous, dissolute, exotic East. And the whole sort of, she was beautiful, you know, the exotic, erotic East. She's this seductress, she's this siren. I think that all kind of hangs together. I also think that because so much of the history is written to please the men who essentially will vanquish Mark Antony, it's important to make Mark Antony seem as if he has fallen into this under the, you know, fallen for her because of her wiles. And so she gets turned into this tremendous seductress, this wanton temptress kind of thing. And that's partly in a way to minimize Mark Antony. And I think just generally it's, it's always been preferable to write a woman's success down to her beauty rather than to her brains, right? And she mm. kind of she sleeps her way to the top kind of thinking. It's less threatening to to think of her as fatally intelligent rather than fatally attractive. Wow. <laughs> I don't know. It's even, I would seem Yeah, I, I, th- I totally agree. <laughs> the fatally and intelligent think, you know, and Cleopatra. Elizabeth Taylor and George Bernard Shaw, you know, a lot there's a lot to overcome here if you want to actually think about what she really looked like, right? Yeah. Now, uh, like you said, Mark Antony, wow, he's got a bit of a messy personal professional relationship. <laughs> Um, could you tell us more about his marriage um, and his fallout with Octavian? Um, so Mark Antony is married to one woman, to Fulvia, when he and Cleopatra take up together. Um, and then sort of conveniently, Fulvia dies. Um, and I say conveniently because one of the few ways in which well-born Roman women were useful is that they were they could serve as sort of personal guarantees of their of their families um, for their families, and Octavian had a much adored half sister named Octavia, um, whom he decides Mark Antony should marry. And she and she again she is offered as this kind of you know closing a political deal. You can marry my sister, and then everything will be will be well. And she's twenty nine. She has all the makings of a kind of long suffering political wife. Um, she's very beautiful. Um, at one point, one of Mark Antony's men will will say, you know, I don't know why he's with Cleopatra because his wife is far more beautiful. 
Um, she's got this glossy mane of magnificent hair, and she conveniently had been widowed just months earlier. So she's kind of precisely what the situation required, and she's essentially thrown into the mix to divert Mark Antony from Cleopatra. But he um, remains under Cleopatra's spell, about which his men are constantly teasing him. So I think, I think she's his third wife or fourth, depending on how you count, it's very unclear if the first one was a marriage or not. So yes, there's a very messy, um, there's a very messy marital life with Mark Antony. He does seem to be pining for Cleopatra in a way that Julius Caesar certainly had not. Huh. And this is another question kind of to set the record straight. Were, were they, were, were Antony and Cleopatra, um, party animals? <laughs> I, <laughs> How do you define party animals, Rebecca? Um, Mark, I think that I think it would be no matter how you define it. I think the answer is yes for Mark Antony. I think one of the interesting things about Cleopatra is that you know when Plutarch says she has all she had this command of a full vocabulary and every dialect of flattery, she knows precisely how to please a man, and she adapts herself very easily to each agenda. So when Mark Antony wants to go out in the streets late at night and play pranks on Alexandrians without revealing that he's the famous Roman general Mark Antony, she goes with him. And that's the kind of behavior that I don't think she would have indulged in on her own or with Julius huh. Caesar for that matter. So there definitely seems to be a, a larking about that was very much kind of Mark Antony's idea, but she was very happy to join in with on the other hand, there we have this fabulous story from Plutarch of the two of them out fishing one day, and Antony pulls this trick because he's not he's not pulling up any fish from the ocean, and he's feeling extremely um, embarrassed. And Cleopatra hooks an already cured, you know, dead fish to his line. She gets one of her men to do this, and as Mark Antony reels this up, she's essentially laughing at him, saying, "You know, you shouldn't be fishing. You should be out there conquering kingdoms and continents. That's your job." So, you know, she she knew how to talk to her man, but she's also she seems very directive in this relationship. Yes. It sounds like she was just a savvy host. Yes. And a, <laughs> a very indulgent one. If you if you read what was being cooked in her kitchens. Exactly. Right. Now, what is the turn? What was the turning point in Cleopatra's reign? And I guess in in. Uh, her relationship with Rome. Uh, at what point did she see the writing on the wall? The turning point is really the Battle of Actium in 31 BC, which is a battle that was probably turned into a more spectacular engagement than it really was at the time. But it is the moment when Cleopatra and Mark Antony and all of his forces, as well as the Eastern Dynas and their forces whom they have recruited meet Octavian, um, Caesar's adopted son's forces, and realize that the day is lost. And this is partly because Cleopatra has convinced them that they should fight a naval battle, and a naval battle was not something that any Roman was really comfortable with. So it's pretty clear going into the, into the Battle of Actium that this is a, a rather tenuous proposition for them. And by the end of the day, um, it is pretty clear that they have met with a spectacular defeat. That said, Cleopatra will sail back to Egypt with her head high, pretending that the Battle of Actium has actually been a victory. But it is hmm. clearly the moment at which they realize that all, all is lost. Um, Mark Antony's men will surrender. And they know that Octavian is going to sooner or later make his way to Alexandria. And they will have to either 
confront him or they're going to have they're going to have to think of some kind of desperate measure if they want to survive. Huh. And and did they have a plan at that point? Did did she see this as a did she see that there was a potential for her to convince Octavian to let her continue to rule or was she ready to give up? What's interesting is that Mark Antony seems to sulk basically over these weeks and she and it's so telling of her is just tireless in her efforts to come up with a solution. So she starts to try to court some of the neighboring kings. Um, she has relationships, obviously, with most of the most of the kings in the East. She looks for an escape route. Um, at one point, she comes up with this plan to um, lift her ships out of the Mediterranean and haul them overland to be relaunched into the Red Sea. Um, and that would have worked except for the fact that she had earlier antagonized the tribe on the other side of the Red Sea. So as each ship was carried up, they were burning the ships. Um, but she was looking to, you know, she thought she could escape to India. She's looking at the map at this point, thinking, you know, how to get out of this fix, you know, but with every possible horizon. Um, and the other plan was to um, flee the other way, circumna circumnavigating Africa and to land in Spain which was not Roman territory and where she thought she could perhaps set up a new empire of some kind. It was a far-fetched idea, but it had been done before. So she's cycling through these, you know, possibilities while Mark Antony is essentially sulking and considering that all is lost. Hmm. Can you walk us through her death? Uh, was she murdered uh, or did she die by suicide? How, how did this all come about? When she realizes that Octavian is about to arrive, um, Octavian essentially asks her um, if she will please murder Mark Antony for him. And she, of course, declines. Um, but she realizes that essentially her fate at this moment is to be captured by Octavian and to be taken prisoner and paraded through the streets of Rome, than which there was no more degrading experience. And other, other captives of the Romans who had done that had wound up in dungeons and gone crazy in dungeons. So that was clearly not, not, not an alternative for her. So she barricades herself in a mausoleum that she had had built um, with two attendants. And Octavian actually has a sort of a, 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 an associate who's meant to be keeping an eye on her. And at one point she dispatches that associate with what she says is just a pedestrian letter to Octavian. And while he is gone, she manages to kill herself. And she's twice before tried to do so. Once she tries to starve herself to death, another time she tries to stab herself with a dagger and both times Octavian's man manages to intervene. But on the third attempt, she succeeds. And Octavian is under the impression when he arrives um, that she has killed herself by snake bite. And he calls in these sort of magical people who are meant to be able to provide an antidote to snake bite. And I think that's why we have this, one of the reasons anyway, why we have this enduring sense that she um, kills herself with a with an asp. Mm -hmm. but it doesn't really hold up. None of the early chroniclers talk about a snake. Even Strabo, who's writing at the time, says he's unconvinced there was any snake involved. And if you think about it, for, for someone who was so crisp in her decision-making, so meticulous in her, in her strategies, entrusting your life to a to a wild beast would not exactly have been a good idea. And we also know from the description in that room that she dies a very peaceful death, not a, not a death that involves any kind of paroxysms, which evidently is how you die if you die of snake bite. 
Mm. So it looks like she either applied some sort of um, lethal paste to her skin or she swallowed some sort of lethal drink. And previous to this, she had, I, I know she had told Octavian she would not murder uh, Mark Antony, but he does die by suicide as well. It, it, does she have a, a hand in that? Um, it's a very Mark Antony type moment. He he too realizes the do- that the door is closing. He needs to kill himself. He asks his servant to do the job. Um, his servant very loyally kills himself instead, which leaves Mark Antony alone with his very sharp dagger. And he stabs himself, but doesn't manage to kill himself. So he is carted over to Cleopatra's mausoleum, gushing blood, and he will die in Cleopatra's arms. And, it, and it's actually a very, in the, in the accounts we have of it, it's an immensely compelling scene where she really does appear to be deeply, deeply in love with him. Um, but he dies in her arms, and it is the day that she actually goes to visit his, visit his burial place on her return that she, that she does commit suicide. Now, how was her death then spun by Octavian? Well, first of all, he adds the snake. And which is brilliant because if you think of women and snakes, you know, it's a, it's a, it's an exceptionally toxic combination, right? It spells that evil is, you know, lurking somewhere. Um, he, it's an, it's an interesting thing with Octavian. He has to, most women in history get minimized. He has to maximize Cleopatra's role in order to inflate his own triumph over her. So he holds her up as actually a worthy opponent and as someone who has died a noble and exemplary death, because Romans were always very impressed when women did courageous things to kill themselves, like swallowed hot coals or jumped out windows. So he actually um, holds this death up as a very sort of noble and courageous one. It's probably a tremendous relief to him because the alternative, parading her through the streets of Rome, might have backfired. It was unclear whether Romans took well to female captives. Um, so she's done him a huge service, and he must must have been deeply grateful. And he ultimately will drag an effigy of Cleopatra through the streets when he has his tri- when he does his Egyptian triumph in Rome. Now, how do you think Cleopatra should be remembered as an emperor? Well, first of all, I think she should be remembered as a ruler. Right? We only remember her yeah. as a sex symbol or a Halloween costume. Um, but she's clear, she's clear eyed from the beginning. She's immensely capable. Um, you know, she builds fleets, she suppresses insurrections, she controls the currency, she relieves famine. Her people seem to adore her. It's a very it's it's marked that there are no insurrections in Egypt during her reign, and that when Octavian is closing in on her and on Mark Antony, the people of Upper Egypt actually offer to rise up against him. And she, who does not want to see them massacred, says, you know, please don't. But there's that there's that real loyalty from her people there. So I think she's an immensely popular ruler and clearly a very capable one. There are a few really original decisions during her reign. Like at one point, she depreciates the currency, which is something no one had thought to do earlier, um, and essentially decides the currency is worth what she says it is, not what each coin actually weighs. Hmm. So we have to ask you this question. We ask all of our guest experts this question. At the end of the day, if you had to pick a person or thing, it could be a concept that you think is to blame for the death of Cleopatra, who or what would that be? (laughs) I love this question. Um, I think I have a 
sort of bifocal answer. If you're looking at it close up, I guess you'd say that Caesar's assassins are also responsible for the death of Cleopatra because had Caesar lived, she, her reign would have endured. But on the larger scale, and certainly overall, because one day it would have happened sooner or later, um, it's the rise of Rome that makes her story over really before it begins. I mean, the, the, she essentially manages to forestall the inevitable for 21 years, but then the curtain comes crashing down and Egypt won't recover its autonomy until the 20th century. Wow. Thank you so much, Stacey, for speaking to us today and uh, just giving us so much knowledge on this topic that I, uh, that is, you know, Cleopatra is so iconic. And I think that we should really get to know her a little better. Entirely my pleasure. Thanks, Rebecca. If you'd like to hear our post-interview discussion and final verdict, head over to Patreon and subscribe. Your support is greatly appreciated. Check out our show notes for a link or head over to patreon.com slash thealarmist. And stay tuned because next week we'll be revisiting the Titanic and we get to have a guest expert answer all of our questions in our Aftermath episode. The Alarmist. Powered by ACAST. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love. And be confident that every inch, stitch, sole, and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.